is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again. Welcome to the show. Coming up on the floods, we'll record flooding at Condoblin and also heading out to Daniloquin now. But what about the north of the state? Well, farmers there still battling isolation and stock losses and crop damage uh, as the flooding continues to take its toll. Though much of the water has started to go down, the harvest is at pretty much a total standstill in many areas. Uh, the crops have got in. Um, whatever's on higher country is doing um, OK. But all the lower countries doing it a bit tough uh, with the water. Some of it's still underwater, some of it's come out of water. I reckon there'd be 10 or 12% of the, all our farming that would be unharvestable. But there's probably up to... 40 or 50% minimum that has been affected. We'd like to hear from you too about the flooding and the flood damage and how things are at your place. 0467922684 is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. And we'll look at the flooding issue shortly again on the program. But before we do that, look at uh, trade because uh, the question is being asked, is the trade freeze with China about to enter a thawing phase? Well, last week, the PM, Anthony Albanese, held a meeting with Xi Jinping. It was the first of its type for six years. The Australian farm sector and mining sector, they're extremely hopeful that the normalisation of trade is now underway after some missteps by the Morrison government. Chief Economist at UTS, Tim Harcourt, says there is quite a bit of reason for optimism. It's a step in the right direction. And even allowing for COVID where no one met anyone, it's still a long time. Uh, Clearly, Australia had been frozen out before COVID uh, and then things got worse as the Morrison government called for an inquiry into the causes of COVID, and then we had some of the trade sanctions. So, yeah, even with COVID, it's significant. It's been a long time. Is it about politics? The new Prime Minister and Xi Jinping can can say, uh, let's start talking again. Maybe let's have trade relaxation because we've it's uh, we're we're talking to a different political leader. It is an opportunity. I mean, it has happened with existing Prime Ministers before. For instance, uh, John Howard got off on the wrong foot with China's leadership and he sat down with them and said let's start again and did and then we had the LNG deal which was a 25 billion dollar deal at the time so even existing prime ministers can sit down with China and say let's start again but it's true that we had the election and so I think China knew that was an opportunity and I think Australia did as well. Look I think uh, the important thing is with China is that um, it's a global power and you've got to engage with China. You can't have a foreign policy or trade policy without them. But you don't have to do everything China says, and I don't think they expect us to. So I, I think what Albanese has done as Prime Minister is that he's shown China the right level of cordial respect, but he hasn't, uh, he hasn't one iota reduced Australia's you know, national sovereignty. He's been very clear that these are Australia's interests, and important to stick to your guns on that. And same with your education, your universities... Uh, your elections, you don't want any power involved in that at all. You know, even the Adelaide City Council elections, there was stories of, you know, Chinese influence. You know, you, you really don't want that in your local institutions. This is about trade. This is about feeding the world, providing energy to Chinese consumers, providing them a quality education. It's not about getting entangled in each other's institutions. Now, the farm sector is saying, I mean, the, we haven't seen too many concerns about coal and iron ore. They still wanted to buy coal and iron ore because they can't, from anywhere else that they get a pretty pretty good deal from Australia. Uh, but they haven't been buying barley, they haven't been buying wine, they buy a bit of wheat 
on the sly is a, a big game changer for agriculture. Look, you're right. I mean, China uh, needs Australia. Uh, they've, they've got food security issues. China needs Australia. They've got energy security issues. So coal, iron ore, gas, wool, they have to buy uh, mm. from us. So they really went after barley and lobsters and types of things that they didn't regard as super necessities, but there were still $20 billion worth of trade boycotts. But at the end of the day, um, I think they know uh, that Australia is a reliable agricultural supplier. And we've seen during the Russia-Ukraine standoff and war and the you know removal of Ukraine from the world trading system as farmers have got off their tractors and picked up rifles and so on, that um, Australia feeds the world. You know, we're one of the, with Argentina and a few others, we're one of the significant agricultural producers in the world. And China knows that. They know that um, countries like South Korea and Japan have, you know, food security issues. They're close to Australia. So uh, China needs Australia as an agricultural supplier. So we're sending in, you think we're going to be sending in more beef, more wheat, more maybe uh, barley will restart and wine will restart? I mean, how long do you think before there's a change? Look, I know the Qingdao. Uh, beer festival in, in Shandong province relies on South Australian barley to make the beer so right. they're not going to want to run out of beer at a beer festival so I would imagine uh, slowly we've already seen a relaxing of some of the boycotts but that will just unravel now that Xi Jinping has met Anthony Albanese uh, at, at, the, at the summit. China's just going to slowly ease out of that position that they had you know without losing face and without being seen as a back down just you know slightly normalised relations. And on that theme, you're actually you're actually meeting with the Chinese ambassador. So is that a sign too that they want to talk to Australia? Yeah, it's interesting. I've been doing a, a, a TV series after the pandemic, The Bigger Picture, and uh, I talked to various Australian and Chinese farmers and business people, politicians, ambassadors and so on. And I had a call in to the Chinese ambassador for some time and uh, I got a call last week saying it's on. So, and, and along with the Trade Minister Don Farrell from the Australian side. So clearly, you know, there's a bit of a normalisation of, uh, of relations. And my, my show goes to everyone in China. Uh, you know, it's got a, a global audience of, you know, 460 million people. So oh, is that all? Is that all? Yeah, that's right. So, so clearly, he, you know, he wants to show that uh, he wants to engage. So I think that's interesting that um, we're now seeing more engagement on the Chinese side. Um, so it's not that we've neglected our friends and trading partners like South Korea and Japan. It's just that uh, a lot of energy has been put into China. And now you know, we can renew some of the very good ties that we have with you know, South Korea, Japan, ASEAN, India, and you know, the emerging world, Latin America and, and, and the Middle East and, and so on. I think a lot of it's to do with, um, you know, if relations are good and you're friendly, well, you don't have to put that much time into it, you know, uh, and but... You can't just let it sort of drift. So I think and, that's what they're doing. And in a way, post the sort of fro the sort of freezing of trade relations with China, it was uh, an opportunity to cast a net more widely too. When we found other markets for some of our produce. Yeah, look, we did with barley and we did with wheat. Um, and of course, I mean, Russia Ukraine war meant that there mm. was no, you know, U- U- Ukrainian wheat on the world market. So Australia's filled that gap. Australia's role, you know, as an agricultural exporter again in helping the world with this global food crisis due to Ukraine not being in the world market. You know, I've heard of Australian wheat and barley and cereals in Yemen and Nigeria and Egypt and Indonesia and 
uh, as well as in our traditional trading partners in Northeast Asia. So clearly Australian farmers have played a very important role in you know, keeping the world food market going. So once you get a leg into those markets, uh, it, it might be something that you can, we can build on for the future too and spread our risk a bit. Yeah, I think it allows us to form a beachhead in those markets and then we and we can grow them. Uh, we found that during the Asian financial crisis of 97 we were able to get beachheads in different different markets and uh, of course um, you know Australia's high quality our agriculture is very productive our farmers are the most you know highest levels of productivity in the world. So once we're there we tend to stick there. Chief Economist at UTS, Tim Harcourt there, and uh, Tim was also formerly the Chief Economist at Austrade. We're getting a few texts on this. David Berry is a bit sceptical. He says, I can't imagine why anyone thinks it's a good idea to trade with China. As soon as they invade Taiwan, the embargoes will be back on again. Dave says we need to find new long-term markets, which is something we were just talking about just then in the interview. It's uh, 14 minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio, New South Wales. To the flooding now and farmers are still battling isolation and stock losses as the flooding continues to take its toll. And spare a thought for our uh, neighbours in the north, uh, though much of the water has started to go down, the harvest there is at a total standstill for many farmers. Jack Denyer farms near Walgett and he's lost about 30 or 40 sheep out of the 2,000. Uh, due to flooding and also partly due to disease. He doesn't think that he'll get to harvest any of his crops, at least until January. And we have still got a lot of water, mainly down in our creek country. Uh, it's pretty hard to tell the depth, but anywhere I reckon from point one to point two of water. So it's been a bit tough. How much of your property uh, is flooded at the moment still? I would think about oh, 15 to 20%. I haven't been able to get around to all of the country, um, but it was a lot worse last week and, and the week before. And yeah. how is your access to roads and the rest of your land at the moment? Are you isolated at all? Uh, we are isolated from from some parts of, of the country because we're, we're spread across uh, multiple farms. We have been on and off isolated from uh, Walgut, which is our closest town, and Weewall, which is our second closest town. And that has been on and off for the last three weeks, I would say. And how are you getting around uh, to and from your property at the moment? Uh, so, sometimes we're driving cars through. Most of the time we're on uh, quad bikes or side-by-sides to get around mainly. You've had um, crops in. How are they doing? Uh, the crops have got in. Um, whatever's on high country is doing um, okay. But all the lower countries doing it a bit tough. Uh, with the water, some of it's still underwater, some of it's come out of water, but, you know, that is, I guess, part and parcel. And how much of it do you reckon would be unharvestable by now? I reckon there'd be 10 or 12% of the, all our farming that would be unharvestable, but there's probably up to 40 or 50% minimum that has been affected to affected by water, if you know what I mean. Downgrades um, in, in our seed... Um, water logging has mainly caused that and yeah has been able to dry out how much yeah. of a financial hit is all that how big of a financial hit oh geez that would have to be a third I reckon yeah and that's probably being a bit conservative how is this uh, this flooding over the past few weeks compared to Prius in 2012 I don't remember so well but dad says it's um, probably just as bad if not worse have you lost uh, any of your livestock to the flooding as well? 
Uh, we have lost a few um, sheep um, to the water and flies and a few other bits and pieces. Um, the cattle have held on really well. Um, we've done our best for them, yeah, but it has definitely taken a toll on their weight and their progress um, as they are stressed all the time. Yeah. So that's also been a very costly exercise. Yeah, and with your sheep, what do you reckon um, from the disease burden? How much has been lost to the disease burden compared to the actual, you know, floodwaters? Uh, look, I think it's probably half and half. I, I would say. Wow. Um, yeah, what we've lost. And when do you uh, expect to be able to start harvesting again? Any idea? No idea. I would say that if the the rain stops and stays stopped, we're probably. 10 days away from getting some higher country, but, you know, to get all of it, we're sort of probably looking, you know, late December, early January. I think it's been a tough season this season um, for everyone. Um, there's plenty of worse off people than us. Um, I just hope we can all, all stick together and hope it turns around next year. That's Walgett Farmer Jack Denyer there talking to Hannah Joes. It's uh, coming up to 18 past 12. Well, vets are being flown in by the SES by helicopter to isolated and flooded communities in the state's west as the flooding takes its toll on stranded animals. Sheep in particular are suffering diseases exacerbated by the constant moisture and stagnant water. Emily Warner is a vet in uh, at vet at Northwest Vets based at Canamble and she says that stock losses are up as farmers aren't able to access the treatment for them. Well, we're going to lightning reach out to two of our branch clinics, but because the roads have been closed, we haven't been able to get up there for the last two weeks. So we were very lucky um, on Monday and Tuesday that the, um, the SCS had organised to pick us up in a helicopter from the Canamble Airport and, um, yeah, take us up to Walgett and Lightning Ridge for a couple of days so that we could see all the little animals up there and give people their medication. And, and uh, have, you, have you had to be choppered into any of these towns before in past flooding events? Not since I've been here at the clinic, which has been a bit over seven years. Some of our staff have been chopped into farms before to do like cattle work and, and stock work. Um, but yeah, we haven't had to go in the chopper to the little branch clinics um, before. So yeah, this is definitely something new for us. And what kind of problems are you seeing in these in these communities out there in the livestock? It's a bit of a tricky time for farmers in terms of um, being able to actually access some of their stock. Um, the sheep in particular are... Uh, yeah, they're being pretty hit pretty hard at the moment in terms of worms and flies um, and also issues with their feet from um, standing around in um, you know, muddy, wet wet areas. Not so much around Walgett and Lightning Ridge, but certainly around Canamble, um, we're still able to get to quite a few of the properties. We've obviously talked to the farmers and try and help them over the phone, particularly in the sheep side of things. They're the ones that are really struggling at the moment. So, yeah, a lot of the farmers are... Are struggling with fly strike yeah that's been a massive problem and from a, a practical sense like you know there's some farms where their stock are a little bit isolated and they've not necessarily been able to to get them in and treat them as regularly as what they would have so that's sort of been an issue for a few farmers too a lot of a lot of deaths from both the flies and the worms yeah barber's pole worm is a big one at the moment and um yeah we've we've heard of a lot of farmers having trouble with that and have had quite a few losses. Are there any particular cases or incidents uh, that stick out to you this past week? We had one little dog and he um, needed some veterinary assistance over the weekend and the the, um, owners had been cut off from all towns for for quite a while and um, yeah so they contacted the SES and they were wonderful and managed to get a helicopter out to this little dog and 
out, rang us when they were on their way, and we came and picked him up from the airport in Canamble and brought him into our clinic, and, yeah, he's, he's going really well. Obviously, a lot of people have found it difficult to get into town themselves, but, um, yeah, one of our clients went above and beyond, and she's um, been coming into town on her kayak, so her little puppy arrived um, on Monday for its vaccination via kayak, so that was um, an interesting one. That was Emily Warner from Northwest Vets in Canamble. It's 22 minutes past 12 here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Now, primary producers on the Tooth Road and the Upper Maclay on the state's been north coast are not happy with an alternative four-wheel drive-only route put in by the Kempsey Shire Council. A landslip precipitated by heavy rainfall on the Tooth Road south of southwest of Bellbrook in April. This led to the closure of the road while the council investigated a bridge across the Maclay River as a permanent solution. The residents only four-wheel drive route, which can't be used to transport livestock in trucks, opened just over a week week ago. Shane Warwick, who runs a beef cap, uh, cattle property on the Toos Road, expressed his frustration to Louisa Rubo. We restrict our hectares to our storage capabilities. And uh, that's not the right story we wanted to hear from. Here's uh, Shane Warwick now. It's actually quite dangerous very steep and narrow and it's not fit for purpose really. Has anybody come into trouble using it? Well the road's only been opened a week but it's very very steep. They've got a lock gate for residents only. We've been issued with UHF radios to call up to see if anyone else is on the road and therefore we've got to pull over to let someone pass if they are on the road. It's only to be used in dry weather and yeah it's just an accident waiting to happen. It's not good for us. We can't get Get any cattle out there's no way you're going to put a cattle truck over there we can't get cattle out we can't get feed fuel or fertilizer in so how do we run a beef cattle property when we can't get any inputs in or get any cattle out to sell it's not a lifestyle block area we're all run large cattle properties and we've had no income from up there for over seven months but the shire is quite happy to keep sending out a, us a rates notice and i think it's quite rude actually to be asked to even pay rates so what are you doing in the meantime then if you can't get your cattle out? We just don't know what to do. We've got to wait for the river to come down. We can get the cattle out across the river. For me, to leave where I live at Bellbrook to get round to access my property at Stockyard Creek takes me nearly two hours to get there. I could nearly be in Armadale in two hours. It takes me two hours just to get round to my property on the other side of the river. For seven months we were locked out and now we've been locked in because we're not allowed any visitors it's residents only and essential services and this is going to be our life for the next two or three, four or five years until they build a bridge. But the Kempsey Council's general manager Craig Milburn says it was always understood the alternative route was going to be four-wheel drive only access. Are there sections of the state? Yes there are but it is made specifically for four-wheel drive access only and that livestock would not be able to be transported across that in trucks. That's been well understood since April. We do know a number of farmers have taken their livestock out via other means and they've actually been able to get those to the sale yards and to auction. So there are other ways that the farmers up there have been doing that. One of the ways has been to take the cattle across the river. That's not possible at the moment because the river is up, but it is certainly when the river comes back down, it is another option for them. We're working with the farmers, we're working with local land services to try and work out how we can get livestock in and out more readily. But the road we built was only ever designed for four-wheel drives. It was never going to be a route for livestock. 
and Kempsey Shire Council's General Manager Craig Milburn says that Council has made a decision to not waive rates for affected landholders, but they may apply for assistance with their rates through Council's hardship policy. 25 past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio, New South Wales. With the planting window just opening, North Coast rice growers are taking advantage of the current dry conditions to get the ground ready for planting. 1,500 hectares has already been contracted to 34 growers, but now the Natural Rice Company has had to close their books, despite not being able to expand the company into international markets because of the decision earlier this year by the state government to extend the single rice market in desk by five years, the Natural Rice Company is continuing to invest heavily in the North Coast region. Miranda Saunders spoke to General Manager of the company, Steve Rogers. We restrict our hectares to our storage capabilities at the moment. So as we build more storage, we'll, we'll uh, release more hectares. Are you planning on building storage at, at the moment? Probably within the next, within the next four years we will. Um, we're just going to get a consistent 6,000 tonne a year for the next couple of years and then we will. What's the limiting factor at the moment on, on the natural rice company's growth? Markets. Yeah, markets definitely. Uh, just having freedom. Uh, you know, we play in a market that's uh, run and owned by a monopoly. They own 85% of shelf space in the supermarkets. Uh, so anytime that we, uh, we look to get product onto the shelf, Obviously, they've got to remove some of their products, so it's a little bit of David and Goliath, really. How do you overcome that when you're limited to only selling on a domestic market? We have something that um, the Riverina can't do, and that's growing our rice dry land. So that separates us from the uh, the rest of the rice industry, of growing dry land or low emission rice, which will be uh, the sort of next food trend that's coming through. So we just keep, got to keep on playing around with that and just poking along until we get the opportunity to export. You've obviously got a lot of confidence in this area. Can you ta- take us through what's happening here on this farm at, at South Gundarimba? Well, uh, we've purchased a farm this year. Um, 250 acres just for a research farm so we can conduct all our varietal breeding and best management practice um, improvements um, in-house. So we have new varieties this year getting grown out on site here and uh, we hope to have our new black rice varieties grown out here next year. Due to the floods, a lot of cropping farms are looking at diversifying and and spreading their risk and and rice is an option that a lot of people are looking at. What are you having to tell people now that you've closed contracts? Yeah, it's a bit of a shame because people are looking for that opportunity, um, seeing seeing as though rice, a good part of our rice survived the flood last year. Um, anything upriver from Korokai survived, where it went underwater for a couple of days and then uh, dropped away. It was still harvestable where other crops weren't. So, yeah, it's been a little bit difficult. I've had a lot of interest um, over the last two months. And unfortunately, you just got to uh, be blunt and say sorry next year, maybe. Does that mean prices have been pushed up? Well, prices have come up slightly. We've gone from 4.30 a tonne last year to 4.50 this year. Unfortunately, because it's only the domestic market we're playing with, we don't have a lot of room in the market to, to try and get up to that 500 where it really needs to be with the, with the higher input costs. We really need to have rice around that 500, which is, you know, another 20, 30 cents a, a packet of rice. 
Your limiting factor is the fact that you can't export at the moment. What is happening in the background? I mean, is the fight continuing? Yes, well, there is the whole new report on the report that uh, the government's released. So there's a new report about to start, uh, which will be run by ABARES, which will be pretty well investigating why the New South Wales DPI report um, was in favour of abolishing the, the single export licence. Are you going to be pushing hard for submissions for that report? Well, we're all in submission fatigue. It's just um, when you already know the answer, it's really hard to put a submission in. But anyway, we'll get the growers together and we'll uh, we'll go again. And um, and hopefully, A Bears also sees the point of um, on 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 the opportunity that here is on the northern rivers. You say that you already know the answer. Why is that? Um, because it's locked in for another five years, so we, we won't get an opportunity for another five years. So, um, you know, we've been through three of these now, and um, it just seems to be the answer's already done before. No matter what reports say or what, what advice is given, the, the answer's already been done. That's Steve Rogers, a general manager of the Natural Rice Company there, and he was uh, talking about the situation with uh, the rice in the north coast, and uh, they're uh, looking to uh, grow some more, but they're having trouble getting it on the supermarket shelves. Getting a few texts in on the uh, flood issue, uh, and uh, John has texted in to say uh, the damage to the farms and the businesses from stormwater in the rivers is the worst he's uh, worst he's ever seen. Uh, we should uh, take the waste of money that's been put up for the water buybacks and that should be used to assist flood victims rather than being uh, used to buy water when it's not needed, says John. And uh, also another text about... Uh, um, sounds, Mark says, uh, sounds like the cattle farmers might need to build their own bridge to walk the cattle across the river. Uh, talking about uh, that uh, situation in the Upper Maclay, uh, walk the cattle across the river and have holding yards and ramps so the trucks can take the stock to market that way, says Mark. So he's uh, already he's already thinking about a solution there. It's uh, 29 minutes to one here on the uh, New South Wales Country Hour. Now it's time to get some news headlines now before we go to the weather details. Uh, news headlines with Jamel Wells. Good afternoon. Michael, good afternoon. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says some critics of the government's industrial legislation hold an ingrained ideological objection to workers being paid fairly. Labor's wide-ranging IR bill has been criticised by business groups and the coalition who say the expansion of multi-employer bargaining could would lead to more strikes. Around 10 law firms in the Central West have offered pro bono services to anyone who needs legal help with finances, tenancy and insurance claims due to the floods. The Department of Primary Industries is warning fish debts could increase in inland river systems over summer. Flooding has created conditions for hypoxic blackwater, which can kill species like Murray cod and crayfish. Japanese encephalitis has been found in pigs in the Murray River region on the New South Wales-Victorian border. And a woman has been rescued from a 12-metre deep well at Gawler West in South Australia. She got stuck after climbing in to rescue a cat. The cat got itself out after the woman 
climbed in, as cats do. <laughs> <laughs> That's like those old stories about kids in wells. Remember they in, in America, it used to happen in yeah. the 30s all the time, and they used to have to rescue the kids from the wells. That's right. Well, yeah. great, great source of adventure if you're a kid or if you're a cat. <laughs> <laughs> Not the best course of action. Cats always really... find a way to I know, look after themselves. I know. That's always. right. Don't worry about the cat. It'll I'll be, be right. back with okay. more at one. <laughs> Thanks, Jamel. Jamel, Jamel Wells, we'll be back at one o'clock with the news headlines, or well, the news, in fact, at one o'clock. Let's find out what's happening with the weather now. Neil Fraser's at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Yeah, hello, Michael. So we're going to get a respite from the rain, Neil? Yes, we're getting that, and mm. the, the wind as well. The, the wind's going to continue blowing, especially around the southeast, sort of hunter southwards. It's still blowing like the clappers, as they say. Mm. And we do have a severe weather warning out for that. And we've had some pretty big wind gusts down the Illawarra. Now we just recently had a wind gust of uh, over 90 k's an hour there. And with the soft, soggy ground, uh, trees will come down even if it doesn't quite reach the, the thresholds that mm. we normally put on these warnings. Good news is the, the wind will ease off during tomorrow. So probably overnight it will drop away a little bit, except up in the higher parts of the ranges. Pick up again tomorrow morning, but then the trend is it will ease off as a ridge of high pressure comes in. Still expecting some showers around the southwest slopes of the ranges today and maybe even some small hail. There's some very cold air coming through with this second front that's coming through. So there might be the odd patch of small hail down around the southwest slopes of the ranges there. Snow levels getting down to about 800 metres. So most activities up in the Alps, so still some pretty good snowfalls up through there and blizzards, of course, with all the wind. But the general trend tomorrow, just a, uh, a few showers just around the southwest slopes of the, the ranges there. Nothing much else. Still windy, as I said. And then by Wednesday, still a few showers around the southwest slopes of the ranges, but generally dry elsewhere. And the wind should have dropped right away with the high pressure moving in. Fairly settled then for Thursday and Friday. There's a, a slight chance we'll see a shower or two around the north coast, maybe a thunderstorm, but it's only uh, probably... 30 or 40% chance up through there. So generally pretty dry for Thursday and Friday and even into Saturday. Beyond that, though, Sunday looks like some more tropical moisture coming down. Lots across the northern half of the country. And some of that could come down more likely around our northeast on Sunday and Monday. So falls of the order of 10 to 20 millimetres in general up through there. And then mixed in with that could be some thunderstorms as well. So that'll bring some locally heavier falls. But generally, in, in the meantime fairly dry until we get this system coming down from the tropics uh, Sunday, Monday. Mm, and that will mainly impact on sort of the north of the state, sort of Moree and what? Tamworth. That's yeah, sort of northeast, yeah, northern Tamworth. Where they are hoping to get harvest sort of up and going, or have started mm. a little bit, so that might put a bit of a dampener on things there. So 10 to 20 millimetres, right. you reckon? On average, yeah, there'll mm. be a few higher falls with the with thunderstorms if we get them, but generally speaking, yeah, the flood situation is going to continue, those now, flood waters take a long time to mm. go down those inland rivers there, mm. so that's not going to go away anytime soon. But the good news is there's not too much to add to it in the coming days. I was going to ask, so not much feeding into the central west, Lachlan, the Murrumbidgee, in no. the next week or so? No. Mm. Okay. And even on the Sunday Monday, there will be some possible shower activity around the central west there, but it's more likely further north. So hopefully that's the way it pans out. Mm, okay, or, or less, 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 less is more at the moment. I think that's right. <laughs> All right. Okay. Thanks, Neil. Thanks, Michael. Neil Fraser at the bureau. It's uh, coming up to twenty-three minutes to one. The Country Hour. 
on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, we're all worried about sustainability these days and we want farmers to reduce their reliance on chemicals and monocultures to produce food. But how do you do that, especially if your farm is the biggest producer of celery in the country? Adam Shores runs a family business in Gippsland in Victoria and he's made an incredible shift to what's called integrated pest management to restore the biodiversity on his farm. He's also returning a lot of his country to native vegetation, filling in old drains and fencing off the river flats. David Crawton spoke to him about his journey to sustainability at the National Ag Day event in Sydney on Friday. It was probably 20 years ago now. We, um, we had resistance to a lot of chemicals. Uh, insects and grubs were getting in our celery, eating our, our celery crops. And uh, I met a guy that was into um, IPM, which was bringing in promoting the good insects to fight off the bad ones and rather than spraying it was it was all about um, knowing what was attacking your crops and knowing what was in there and rather than just spraying and killing everything and repeating that over and over again it was uh, taking a bit of a hit initially letting these beneficial insects breed up and um, populate the crop and they eat the eggs of the, the caterpillars as they're laid. They, um, just by having a presence in our crop, it stops the, the bad insects coming in there because they know they're going to get eaten up when they do land. So, Is that right? Yeah. They don't stop at your farm? Some do, but <laughs> way less than we used to. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, did you say you made a reference to my entomologist? Is that right? Do you have an entomologist? That I, I do have an entomologist. He's, he's not employed directly, but I've been working with... Uh, this guy Paul Horn now for I think 25 years and um, we started IPM in vegetables it wasn't done in vegetables before we started and he visits every Monday still and we 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 count our beneficial bugs we we get like a leaf blower and put in reverse we suck all the insects out of the crop and then we actually physically we put them in a white tray and we physically count them and we if there's um, you know five aphids and Five ladybirds, we do nothing about it whatsoever because we know the ladybirds are going to overtake the aphids and eat them all up. What have you noticed over time about the number of insects in the variety in your property? Uh, It's just very easy now to build them up because we we keep our boundaries um, treed with native um, trees that will have native flowers on them and they harbour the beneficial bugs. So whenever we plant a crop, straight away they're in there populating the crop and we we really don't even have to look at it for spraying or worry about the insects that are going to come in and eat them we, mm. we still do weekly scout the crops but it's very rare now that we'll put it, we don't even spray for aphids i think we in the last 10 years we've probably been lucky to do it 10 times right. that. Yeah. but there is an issue isn't there because if you get insects in your pro- crop good or bad your produce then, then one of the, the major retailers might knock that back. What are the, what's the criteria around that? That's right. There's a, a few of the major retailers, the criteria is zero insects. So for us to have beneficial insects in our crop is even a no-no uh, with the major retailers. They, they don't like it. The consumer, they say the consumer wants a clean product with no insects at all. Um, one of the retailers has uh, put in their specification 
that we can have three insects in there. Um, three it's small coals, insects. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Coals are doing that, which is which has been great for us um, to continue our IPM program. You know, we do our best to wash them out after harvest, but because of the way we manage our crops with these insects, we there is always one or two still in the in the crop. And you created a great picture. In, in the chat around the table about your farm and how it looks with native animals and you said said you know the birds and the kangaroos and the other things are quite welcome on my place you know that they're not doing any damage is that right no that's that's right exactly right how it's, does that work i i really don't know um because we have created more of an environment for them boy it was a fairly blank canvas of of grass before now we have native trees everywhere encircling our blocks um and there, you can see all the animals around the boundaries, but I think they don't really like the soft soil either, where the crops are growing. And because there is all the native bushland, the native grasses, they don't need to come and eat our crops. Mm. So, because um, you, you, you said alone. you're fencing off some areas, one block you told me you had 250 was it acres that was just for native vegetation on a, on a 14... Will be. We're planting it. We've, we've planted 70,000 so far. Right. Um, but, yeah, over the next five or six years, we'll be, we'll be planting all of our low-lying country, which is yeah. 250 acres thereabouts. And another one of your major um, production sites, you've fenced off quite a large part of the river and, you, and, you re, and, and, and filled and in your drains. Vegetating that, yeah, filling in drains, letting the, letting the wetlands come back to as they were naturally. Uh, just promoting the biodiversity again and the, the natural... And that's not costing you from a production perspective? No, these areas are low-lying and they're very risky um, from a flood perspective. So um, we could run cattle on it and, and lease it out, which is that's what was happening with it before. But we see much more benefit out of uh, promoting the biodiversity, getting the trees back in there and having it as a filter between our growing area and the river. Right, because it's anything that might be running off your place is getting filtered out of the river. That's that's correct, yeah. And any any nutrient that may be left in the water will will get stripped out of the water by the native wetland grasses, which we have been planting a lot in any in our waterways. Um, I've sort of been able to demonstrate to catchment management authorities that um, if there are nitrates in our water, by the time they go through all of our our grassland plantings, they they don't even register on a test strip. Adam Shaw speaking there to David Clawton at the National Ag Day event in Sydney uh, put on by Syngenta and the National Farmers Federation held in Vaucluse. It's 17 to 1. The New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, trucking companies are finding it increasingly difficult to move freight across eastern Australia. Flooding has caused, uh, as we know, caused key transport routes including the Sturt Highway around Hay to close and also problems with the Newell Highway as well and many other roads are also badly damaged as well. GTS Freight Management's National Operations Manager Ben Fenner told Kelly Hollingworth it's a huge logistical challenge for a company that has trucks covering 160,000 kilometres in any one 24-hour period. With the Sturt Highway closed to all traffic west of Hay uh, meaning there's significant diversions in place to Sydney and Brisbane um, from Mildura and Adelaide, which was predominantly where we operate out of. Um, generally, our trucks operate via the new highway. However, however we're now heading south of Barranald uh, across to Deniliquin 
up into Wagga and on to Brisbane for there, adding about 400 kilometres travel time for one way. Have you ever come across anything like this before in the time that you've been in the trucking industry? I've spent 11 years here at GTS and um, I haven't seen anything like it myself and the people I talk to who are more experienced around me share similar stories. So we've faced a lot of adversity in the past with flooding and fire and all those sorts of things but this is certainly shaping as the biggest um, weather event I've dealt with in my time here. We're sitting in what is normally your boardroom. What's happening in here at the moment? And to paint a picture, we're staring at a big screen, which is essentially the live traffic websites that New South Wales operates, so you can see what conditions are like where you've got vehicles. Yeah, it's normally a boardroom for business, but I've, uh, I've hijacked that as in my role from now. So it's a bit of a control centre for us. Um, we've got fantastic tools with live traffic. Um, we've got the RMS, local police, who are really really helping us and giving us information as fast as they possibly can. But yeah, a lot of time is spent here assessing what roads may be out of action or potentially be coming out of action and um, yeah, allows us to be a little more agile and make better decisions. Now I imagine that road conditions don't change nine to five Monday to Friday. So what is a typical workday looking like for you? We're working uh, massive hours from everyone from our director um, right through our business. Our team's working incredibly hard. Um, our drivers are working as hard as they possibly can, safely and legally. Um, but yeah, we're all uh, working around the clock. How do you keep on top of this and know what's going on? Yeah, that's, that's my role predominantly now. I've basically, basically turned into watching weather all the time and pre preparing for the next route and next contingency and having that prepared, for, ready for my team to go in case we get another constraint or, or road closure or diversion. So that's predominantly my role now is um, allowing us to be set up for success and to do the job safely by preparing accordingly. Diesel isn't cheap at the moment. If you're talking about a truck going to Brisbane having to do an extra 400 kilometres. There must be huge additional costs placed on the business. There are significant commercial impacts, there's, there's no doubt about it. The fuel price in this country is still really volatile, um, so we've got to be agile with fuel levies, those sorts of things, but the additional um, distances travelled now, we, we have to start to share some of that cost. We can't absorb that as a business, and the rest of the industry will be doing the same thing. So just another another challenge we have to face but um, we can't wear it all unfortunately. Having the roads open is one thing but having them in a condition that you can probably travel on is another. What kind of situations are your drivers coming across and are they documenting that for you along the way? They are uh, within reason. Um, we, we ask them to focus on their tasks solely but um, our, all of our trucks are fitted with um, front-facing front and rear-facing cameras so we can assess um, road conditions at a, from a live, live level, which is fantastic um, with, with, with that feature. Um, but the, the images we see of potholes, parts of roads missing, uh, it's fairly confronting and for it's, it's quite unsafe for a lot of road users. Um, so we just try and do our best, but our average, average speeds of our vehicles are well down and, and that's by design just to do the job safely. GTS Freight Management National Operation Manager Ben Fenner speaking there to Kelly Hollingworth. On the country hour, it's 12 to 1. Well, truck drivers aren't just facing road diversions and potholes, 
A new study published today shows that truck driving is bad for your health. A Monash University study has found that if nothing is done to improve the health of Australia's truck drivers, 6,067 lives and $2.6 billion in productivity could be lost over the next 10 years. The study lead, uh, Ross Isles, told Amy Phillips that truck drivers want to eat and exercise but are largely being prevented from doing that. There isn't one simple answer to help drivers to be healthy. And it's not just about necessarily, you know, dry, delivering an app to the drivers or, or, or just helping the drivers to, to be healthy. It can't just fall upon the driver's shoulders. We actually need a system-wide approach to actually, you know, make it easier for drivers by reducing the pressures in terms of, um, you know, needing to be somewhere on time um, and actually providing, you know, good quality facilities for drivers to be able to stop and refresh and, and actually show them that we, we value what they do because without trucks, Australia stops. You also say, though, that, of course, servos are profit-driven. How does that play into this narrative? Well, what we, uh, of course, um, you know, service stations, they, they are businesses, but what we need to make sure is that um, drivers have the opportunity to choose between um, good, healthy options and um, rather than those the, the quick, uh, high-saturated fat-type foods. Um, and, but that's only that's only one part of the picture is is what drivers are eating. There's other pressures that fall on drivers. Uh, and when we spoke to drivers, one of the things that really struck me was that drivers know that they're not always respected by the general public for for the role that they play and, and what they do. Everything in our houses, uh, everything that we eat, at some stage, has spent time on a truck. Yet, what drivers feel like if there's if there's ever an accident and there's a truck on the scene, that mm. the driver is pres- presumed guilty, um, rather than um, than just happen to be a bystander because they spend so much time on the road. Which would absolutely have to play into their health, wouldn't it? Absolutely, that that pressure weighs down on drivers significantly, uh, and we know um, oftentimes that you know, men in particular have difficulty talking about their mental health. Uh, part of our research, we 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 spoke to partners of drivers, and they told us that uh, that when it it means when a driver comes home, he might be angry uh, or, or you know quick to anger. He doesn't realise that it's necessarily that his mental health. That's how he's dealing with all the pressure that that that's um, that's put upon him, and that he has to deal with at work every day. And so we know that uh, we can do better in terms of supporting drivers with their mental health as well. So, what's your recommendations? Uh, is this a private or a public sector issue to address? I, I think it's both. I think on the on the public sector side of things, we need to ensure that drivers have adequate facilities and rest stops. And I think there's actually um, a requirement for from a almost like a an industry wide public uh, media campaign to um, to help people to treat drivers with the respect that they deserve. Um, Privately, I think um, it's up to employers to actually show drivers that they actually want to support their health and well-being. And the way to think of it is, and, and what we've tried to do with our, our latest research, is show that from a financial point of view, it makes just as much sense to look after what's at the front of the truck uh, as it does to pay attention to what's going in the back of the truck. Mm. And there's a dollars and cents argument to that. Most of those drivers are actually driving in small companies. So we know there are some big players, but it's a really sort of, distributed workforce so we really need to pay attention to getting to get out to those family operators that might operate two or three trucks to make sure they're doing the best they can to maintain their health and are they drivers mostly male 
Mostly, most drivers are male. It's a male-dominated workforce, but there is a, a very important proportion of female drivers as well who are facing exactly the same pressures as, as the male drivers. We've focused on men because of our, our research was mostly responded to by, um, by men, uh, and we figure we're, you've got to start somewhere. <laughs> so we'll, we'll start with tackling the men, and, um, and we obviously we, we get the input of, of the women uh, as well. But uh, it is a male-dominated workforce. Ross Isles is the Associate Professor of the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at Monash University. To Bendigo Sheep and Lambs, Jenny Kelly. Good afternoon. Lamb supply is similar at 17,000, but sheep numbers declined to 7,800 head. Not a lot of weight or quality in the lamb run, with most suckers just borderline for carcass finish. And with Hamilton cancelling the start of its split sales today, and much of New South Wales still underwater, demand for good lambs intensified. Best heavy lambs 10 to $20 dearer. The 26 to 30 kilo suckers 226 to 260 to average $243 at a ballpark 850 cents, which meant some pens were costing up to 900 cents. The 24 to 26 kilo young lamb. 204 to 236 to average 214 but not so much joy in the plainer trades and light store lambs with secondary types just firm to five dollars easier in places the 20 to 22 kilo lambs showed a range of 146 to 180 dollars the better bred store lambs with a bit of frame held their value at 125 to 148 but little lambs in the 12 to 16 kilo range eased at $62 to $123 to average $93 to the paddock. Sheep were 5 to 10 dearer, light mutton lifting the most, heavy ewes 135 to 150 light 92 to 125 Jenny Kelly for MLA. To Corowa Sheep and Lambs, Graeme Richard. Good afternoon. The lamb numbers lifted to 9,350 and most were new season lambs. The quality improved and most were trade in heavyweights. Store lambs and extra heavyweights were limited. The better lambs sold to a much stronger trend with secondary lambs and lambs that looked washed out were similar or cheaper in places. New season store lambs 57 to 153, the trades to 24 kilos, 148 to 218 or 830 to 860 for the better lines, secondary lambs 650 to 750. 24 to 26 kilos, 203 to 226 or again 830 to 860, heavyweights reach 250 or 830 cents a kilo. The old trade weights 175 to 189, heavyweights 204 to 210 and extra heavies topped at 269. Mutton numbers increased and prices were 20 to 30 dearer on the heavy sheep. Medium weight ewes were firm, 101 to 126, and restockers paid to 146. The heavy crossbred ewes, 130 to 148, and merinos reached 161. And this has been Graham Richard. To Dubbo Ship and Lambs, Doug Robson. Around 20,000 sheep were yarded, including 14,500 lambs, consisting of increased numbers of flight and trade weights, along with several pens of heavy lambs. Quality was mixed in a cheaper market, with flight and trade weights selling $20 cheaper and more in places for the planter types, with prices varying considerably. Heavy lambs were less affected. Young trade lambs sold from $119 to $185 for the heavy trade, restocker lambs $79 to $100. Old trade weight lambs sold from $100 to $166, heavy weights $207 to $270, and heavy hoggets sold from $87 to $164. The balance of the lambs and 5,785 sheep are still to be sold. Doug Robson at Dubbo. 
to Wagga Cattle, Leanne Dax. Good afternoon, agents yarder. Just over 3,000 cattle in a fair to good quality offering. Feeder types were well supplied. However, the market was very erratic over all categories, causing huge price variations. Prices generally came off the boil 25 to 40 cents, with heavy heifers over 500 kilos up to 50 cents cheaper. Veal 468 to 555. Trade steers 410 to 544. Trade heifers 370 to 488. Feeder steers lightweight 438 to 562 feeder steers medium weight 420 to 555 feeder heifers medium weight 384 to 480 the lighter weights 410 to 534 heavy steers 366 to 460 bullocks 375 to 444 heavy cows were 328 to 355 the middle run of leaner types 240 to 310 on Leanne ducks for mla let's go to forbes cattle now and crystal ripley Numbers fell this sale with agents yarding 663 head. Quality was fair with a good offering of grain-fed finished cattle available along with the planer types. Usual bars were present competing in a cheaper market. Yearling steers to feed slipped 15 to 20 cents to receive from 420 to 490 cents a kilo. Those to processors were also cheaper to sell from 416 to 500 cents. They have a portion followed a similar trend with processors paying from 460 to 480, while those to feed ranged in price from 420 to 460. There was a good offering of heavy steers and bullocks and prices ranged from 380 to 440 cents a kilo. Cows were limited and reached 320 cents. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. And let's go to Tamworth cattle now, James Armitage. Good afternoon. No change in numbers with 1,065 yarded. A good supply of yearlings along with extra heavyweight bullocks and a fair supply of cows. Heavy feeders well supplied. The full field of buyers were in attendance. Demand was weaker for the most part. Market trends cheaper through the yearling steers significantly so on the feeders. Medium weights sold from 340 to 480 cents. Restockers to 606. The heavyweight feeders sold from 392 to 532 cents. Medium weight yearling heifers only slightly cheaper. Six to eight cents on feeders, three forty to five oh four. Heavy trade, three sixty five to four seventy. Heavy ground steers to process, forty to fifty cents cheaper, three forty eight to four seventy. While extra heavyweight full mouth bullocks made from three sixteen to three seventy six cents a kilo. Well finished ground heifers, ten to twenty five cents cheaper. Sea muscle three scores, three twelve to four twenty two. Another substantial fall in the cow market, as much as forty cents a kilo. With heavy thrown four scores, three ten to three hundred and thirty six cents a kilo. James Armitage for MLA in Tamworth. And that's the market information for today. And got some texts in now, someone talking about uh, the uh, bridge across the road in the upper McClay saying, what about getting the army in to build a small bridge to get the cows across? They do that type of thing all the time and it'd be good practice for their engineers on the trucking and uh, improving their their health and fitness. Uh, what about there's someone saying? What about getting an exercise machines installed at truck stops for physical health or uh, just for stretching? And uh, it's uh, there's a range of other texts coming through as well. You've been listening to the Country Hour. We'll be back tomorrow between twelve and one. We'll talk to you then. <laughs>